0: Listeners and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as in every other episode thus far, and it won't be any different this time.
1: It's McGill. <laughs> that, it's McGill. That felt that felt loaded. Is it gonna be different this time? No.
0: I I I wonder if it'll ever be different. Will we ever record an episode that you can't make it for some reason that'd be so bizarre like i know some podcasts do that but i i can't see us doing it with our podcast it seems like we would do it some some ringer for a host at best we would have like a guest dm maybe some episode maybe someday if if people show enough interest uh we will you know get a guest dm on the show and that'll be something but uh for the time being, no, it's just us, like every other thing, and uh it's the 17th of March 2021, and it is episode 53.
1: Hey, happy St. Patrick's our... Day.
0: Oh man, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was thinking about how last week we just celebrated our, our 52nd episode, so our whole year of uh, weekly episodes, and now... um yeah, that's that's right. It's also St. Patrick's Day, but St. Pandemic's Day more like.
1: Hey, oh.
0: I yeah, it didn't quite fit. I think quite. I I got I saw the pa in pandemic and the pa in pat and I just went for it and it uh I just, what are you going to do? Although, you know, people are getting their vaccines. My grandma's getting her vaccine next week.
1: That's awesome, so man. That's really great. That's
0: all It's all. Yeah, actually, I saw on the news today um, that they're giving vaccinations to uh, or they're planning to give vaccinations to grocery workers and gas station employees in PEI. So I was thinking you might want to quickly submit an application.
1: I'm trying to get uh, a job at a gas station or grocery store. Well, maybe, maybe I'll be able to. Apparently, though they're saying that uh, all the PEI is going to be vaccinated come summertime. Not yeah, too bad. I mean, uh, Just around they're the corner. already
0: they're already targeting for grocery staff and gas stations. I imagine they're pretty well on their way. Um. So I have Operation Dark Valley. Uh, going back to that. Um. Gates of Slumber album, Conqueror. Just uh, throw in combinations of uh, track titles together, and we got Dark Valley. And uh, I'm just going to be running yet another classic uh, Adventurers League um, fifth edition module. You know, one of their one of their earliest ones, actually the first one. This will this will be actually my first time describing a session that I ran that was based on a module that's from the Adventurer's League that is not one of those little five mini-adventure packs that they use as introductions to their uh, seasons. This will be a proper Adventurer's League adventure. And for those who are maybe familiar with it, it will be uh, Secrets of Sokol Keep. Uh, Once again, an adventure in the city of Flan.
1: They serve Flam and Flan?
0: Not in my flam... Well, it's, for me, it's Goblin Town. That's right. We're going back to Goblin Town, and you know what that means. Back to the Howling Wolf. And uh, you're picking up from uh, where you left off. Is that right?
1: That's right. Uh, my players had just entered uh, an extra-dimensional dungeon called the Asmodian Knot, where the Enforcer Elite... Uh, hold their prisoners and torture them to extract information. And, uh, this one's basically a big old dungeon crawl.
0: And they no doubt venerate fiendish powers within.
1: Indeed. Lots of fiendish stuff
0: inside. Apparently it's session seven of your Live from Eberron
1: campaign. Yeah, but we don't Um really track the sessions anymore.
0: Well, we can track your sessions. I mean, whatever. <laughs> um, I've got sort of unrelated news, but you know, I've uh, it's weird. It seems a little late for this, but I seem to have picked up a very late uh, in the game uh, quarantine hobby, which is uh, I've been playing the bass. Nice. A slapping a little bass. Although I'm not really slamming it, I'm more picking it. I've been playing the bass. Just play the bass every day. Now Tom every is day. a bard. I don't know about that, but you know, well, okay. If if Lemmy from Motorhead was a bard, then I then I I'll be that kind of bard. Lemmy is absolutely
1: uh, a bard. Come on.
0: I mean, he was in the game Brutal Legend. He was uh, a healer. Um, him, he, him, and his uh bass guys bassists that roll around on uh big motorcycles uh they would heal your troops
1: i think it counts
0: yeah i mean it's it's like you know uh music-based magic healing yeah i mean bards heal all the time these days
1: can you uh play Uh, the seinfeld theme yet
0: God, you know, I've had you're the second person to ask me that <laughs> since I've announced that I've been playing and like you're gonna I have to learn it. it's of it.
1: one of the most famous bass pieces in pop I mean, culture. I, anyway, I, I,
0: I get well, OK, so I haven't I haven't learned it. I hadn't thought of it until my friend mentioned it, but I do know down on the corner by Creedence. It's hey, a good time. I mean, it's it's infectious. It's uh, people hate it when I I like to go around and do things like do do do
1: do, do, yeah. do, do what you think about <laughs> do, that. Do, and they're do, like, do, do, God
0: do. damn it. Leave me alone. And it's in their head forever.
1: See, if you can get the Seinfeld theme down, then you can punctuate your jokes with your bass. You tell a joke and they go do 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 it's, it's just carry just, your bass around and then when you enter places you can enter it and go like boom boom boom
0: it just seems like like it seems like such a weird piece of music to learn it's like it's like learning the the frasier theme like it's it barely constitutes a
1: song but the frasier theme is a song it's got lyrics and everything Toss Salad and Scrambled I don't Eggs. Know
0: what, it's like he's just, it's, it's like half of a verse and it doesn't, there's no structure to it. He just uh, he talks hears, about toss salad. He hears salad the and,
1: blues a Colin, toss salad and scrambled eggs.
0: Like none of that repeats ever in the song. Except that like, you know, salad eggs all over my face what, what no it does
1: though because I can't believe we're off on this tangent but he goes hey baby I hear the blues are calling to salad and scrambled eggs and maybe you seem a bit confused but I got you pegged because I don't know what to do with those salad and scrambled eggs he brings back the, the scrambled eggs he definitely does
0: right but it's not like he doesn't bring it back like you bring back a part of a song like no part of the song it's not like a song with a structure with like verse and chorus and stuff it's just like he musically rambles out a story about Toss salad and scrambled egg it's
1: much more jazz than blues
0: i mean and i i guess like seinfeld is basically the same thing it's like there There's no structure of a song to learn there. It's just a bunch of like bam, 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 bam,
1: bam, bam, bam. the main riff repeats the that that's true that's true that, the, that part doo-doo, repeats doo-doo-doo. over over and over, and then it's just like yeah, stings yeah. Ba-doo, ba-doo, okay doo, yeah ba-doo, ba-doo, I,
0: you know, now that I think of it, I could learn the boom doo, doo. that's that's more easy for me to grasp in my head um because it's it's the stings like i always think of and i'm just like what what am i even doing at that point like what is the time signature what i feel like i'm just noodling at that point you know then
1: you got to get a friend to go do the like the the little and then a little keyboard that goes (laughs) (laughs) this is a dnd podcast right
0: yeah, I just uh I, I don't know. I felt like I mentioned what I was up to. And I mean it is it is relevant to your game because you're doing a band. Who, yeah, it
1: t- ties into now, the Bards. Who who's
0: the who who's the bassist in that group?
1: Oh, they don't have one. You know, and that's interesting the because, you know,
0: if if it was an old uh if it's like a fantasy time band you can use like weird exotic instruments for the bass. You could use a didgeridoo.
1: I guess the I guess Jalen on the holophoner could kind of kind of pick up the bass line if he wanted.
0: Yeah, I mean somebody had to. You are telling me these guys played all across Eberron with no bass? Somebody sitting in the background at every show. Where's the bass? Bass. <laughs> Anyways, see, it all tied back eventually. Yeah,
1: we got there.
0: I got Operation Dark Valley. And like I said, we're going back to the Howling Wolf, back to Goblin Town. Do you want me to kick it off this time?
1: Yeah, you might as well start this one. As I said, mine is, mine is a pretty straightforward dungeon crawl.
0: So this is an interesting case for me because um I'm hopefully I'll get a good shot of this and I'll put it up on our WordPress but for some of my adventures that I was running um I would actually lay them out almost like 2D like like action game levels in my notebook so basically, I'd have, like, you know, two lines is basically a room height, and I draw, like, block. I draw blocks, you know, it's kind of like, um... It's like, if when, ever played,
1: like when people map out a Metroidvania game?
0: Yeah, yeah, like that, uh, or if you've ever played XCOM, the way you lay out your base, um, that sort of thing, and then I sort of draw in, I... I write in all the like you know if there's a door leading from one block to another i'll write in if it's got a locked dc i'll just jot down what the dc is and what the skill check is and i've got those hidden all over the place and then i've also got like at the start a little drawing of the of the characters and then in each room if there's monsters i also have drawn them in and uh I haven't done this for every adventure, but I should actually start taking picture of these and providing them when I have them, because there was also one for uh, the Ma uh, Maw uh, thing that uh, I had previously wrapped up. I also have sort of a, a platformer map of that level. But um, the useful thing about this is that I can just consult my sort of visual aids... To uh, see basically what was going on with this whole session. Now, but before we get to the real like dungeon map, though, of course, we go back to the Howling Wolf in Goblin Town. Uh, The players return and uh, they've showed up in time for lunchtime, but there's some trouble brewing. There's a whole lot of surly goblin dock workers who aren't too happy about something and they're all on edge. And there's a risk of a riot in the howling wolf, they're a bar brawl or something you know you know discontent disruption um and Eric Kendor actually uh our Stormblast Kendor, the Goliath cleric um which this is very much like his session, I'll say, and you'll see why, but uh. The storm cleric he happened to have the spell ready uh calm emotions and so i had all these dc ready for like different ways that they could like calm down the crowd and everything and avoid the brawl uh but actually ara was able to just cast a spell that like made them all chill out
1: (laughs) once again this has happened before
0: uh like in terms of just like
1: you've got like all this stuff set up and then your player is just like, oh, well, I got a spell that can do all that.
0: Well, it it was only a few skill checks. Like, I thought it was good, quick thinking, and, and uh, it's never a small thing when they use a spell slot. Like, I don't know, I I thought it was good, and for what it's worth, like, I think the player who has the reputation of doing this is my brother, who is playing Ara Stormblust Kendor, <laughs> and also played Valfar Ein Dragling Guy, yep. who, like, reversed the plague with his control weather winds, and, like... Stop the terrorist plot by remapping the sewers with Mirage Arcane. Um, So, yeah, it's in his wheelhouse, basically. Uh, After they calm things down, they're treated by Abigail the hostess to a round of drinks for taking care of the trouble that was brewing at the Howling Wolf. And they start asking around to see what's going on. And uh, basically, the lighthouse... Uh, on Lighthouse Isle in the Docks District of the, uh, Goblin Town. And that's spelled D-O-X in Goblin Town. Docks District. Uh, the, uh, Docks District, the Lighthouse has been out on Lighthouse Isle. It hasn't been working. Nobody's able to sail It's causing troubles. They get, get shipwrecked. Can't do that. Can't navigate. The Lighthouse isn't telling people where to go. And, uh so it's, everybody's out of work it's like all the all the stuff's wrecked what the heck's going on and and there's all these rumors about what's going on what happened in the lighthouse some say that it's haunted um but you know it's 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 troubles and uh they gotta the players are like all right we're gonna we're gonna go see what the heck's going on here with these dang with this dang lighthouse see see what's going on and see if we can't get things back to the way they were get these Goblins back to work and stuff causing trouble at the local tavern um they met up with a ferryman who would uh take them to the lighthouse aisle who was also kind of a shifty goblin character who was like Ah it's haunted he He gave them kind of a an aladdin style warning where he's like, Don't steal anything, it's haunted. you'll get cursed blah blah and um he was also like he was just like needlessly cagey in some respects. Like I remember there was like a DC to prompt him to actually give the players the key to the lighthouse because it's locked up and it's like, they shouldn't have to ask for that, but, (laughs) but they did remember they're like, so is there a key to this place? And he's like, ah, yeah, here you go. (laughs) You should have just given it to them in the first place. But, um, yeah, and it, it's not like, like, even if he had, if they didn't have the key, it would have just given Chessie a chance to flex her insane uh, lock picking skills. Um, but uh, whatever the case, you know, he's, uh, I got the ferryman drawn on the edge of the docks. He's like, it's haunted. Don't steal. This is weirdly enough, I think, going to come up again in this campaign. The, it's haunted. Don't steal. Uh, combo um so they get into the lighthouse and it's quiet it's empty seems like uh no one's home nothing's going on they look around main floor there's a there's a desk there's a bookshelf there's a tapestry on the wall um they checked it out there was some religion checks and, uh, basically if they check the bookshelf and if they check the tapestry, they realize that there's sort of a theme here of like the lighthouse keeper or, or whoever lives here, like venerates the God Poseidon. The tapestry depicts an event called the rebellion of the tides, which was when Poseidon, uh, basically sunk a hole fleet of northern pirates with by just like turning the tides back on them and and wrecking them and so that's what the tapestry depicts is like poseidon rising out of the ocean and all these waves sort of destroying this fleet of pirates um we're back into that
1: situation where i'm thinking like so the greek gods like they exist in in drail
0: and, uh, the, uh, bookshelf, uh, if they looked through the books, there was some chance to find, like, prayer books to Poseidon and whatnot. You know, so all signs are pointing to, like, this is, whoever controls the lighthouse is a, is a worshipper of Poseidon.
1: The prayer, the prayer to Poseidon goes something like...
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, then they go up to the next floor, and that's, like the floor before going up to the actual like sort of lighthouse lantern point uh the beacon and uh they find it's just kind of like got supplies stacked around but there are some secret doors concealed in this sort of like uh cluttered supply area above the bottom area and the secret doors uh they're not that hard to find but one of them leads into a hidden area that's actually got like a shrine of Poseidon, which an actual, with an actual like little statue of him holding his trident and everything. And then the other secret door um, reveals a lift that goes downwards. So I think the players left that lift and went up to the beacon and, and searched that first and they did find that the uh beacon was empty there was no light inside though they did find a hidden compartment where, there's so, where there was some gold stashed so that was a little bonus for them but then going back to this lift and uh taking the lift down it took them to a down into a secret underground temple to Poseidon like in the island under the lighthouse And they're like, okay, okay. with the guy wasn't in the lighthouse, but now we're now we're going to see what's what. Um, In the sort of like uh, underground island basement uh, area, the uh, floor is like slippery because there's sort of water is leaked in. And and so there's like uh, the player basically if players chose to run, there's a chance that they'd slip and fall and whatnot. And um, they found, uh, initially going into this sort of hidden basement, there's basically a bunch of traps. Um, There's a trio of sort of suits of animated armor. Um, There's also some kind of... I'm actually going to check this real quick. I'm not remembering quite... Uh... Right. So there were the... Initially, they get into the uh, underground temple and the sort of, like, entryway which is this sort of slippery, wet cavern uh, is guarded by these three uh, suits of animated armor and then beyond that there is, like, a spike pit that they have to uh, get across to get into, like, the temple proper but... Um, there is a terrible stench rising out of the spiked pit and uh, this is the hint that in fact at the bottom of the spiked pit are lurking a uh, four ghasts which are like uh, demonic ghouls they're sort of a higher level of ghoul that uh, is sort of in fiction I think uh blessed by the demon lord of the undead orcus or some some such but basically they're like demonic slightly more intelligent ghouls but they have this terrible stench uh that can poison enemies that are around them. But anyways, yeah, there's there's gas at the bottom of the pit so they're crossing this spiked pit. But actually what comes crawling out is these demonic ghouls. And obviously something's not right here. This isn't this isn't good Poseidon business. It's downright something's ghastly. Co- yeah, something's, something ghastly is corrupting the underground Temple of Poseidon. If indeed it is a Temple of Poseidon. Actually, um, in the original uh, module, Secrets of Sokol Keep, I don't think Poseidon is involved at all. I think they lean much more into like the Forgotten Realms setting. But what I mainly remember is that Um, it turns out that the, uh, secret shrines and whatnot and everything have been corrupted, and, uh, the Lighthouse Keeper has turned to the worship of the, uh, the Abyssal Lord Dagon. Um, so basically, you know, an evil aquatic-themed deity. Uh, but, you know, in this one, I'm sort of keeping the theme. Obviously, we've got gas, we've got undead sort of I'm tying it to the night set eclipse basically so finally they managed to push their way through the doors of the underground temple they burst through and of and sure enough there's an altar of Poseidon but it's been corrupted uh there's the lantern of revealing a magic item that actually I'll I'll read the description here uh while well lit This hooded lantern burns for six hours on one pint of oil, shedding bright light in a 30-foot radius and dim light for an additional 30 feet. Invisible creatures and objects are visible as long as they are in the lantern's bright light. You can use an action to lower the hood, reducing the light to dim light in a 5-foot radius. And one thing that's interesting here, so they could have taken this as as a magic item, or... They could have placed this in the beacon at the top of the lighthouse and this would have, in combination with the beacon, functioned as like turning the lighthouse back on. But I was also sort of giving them the opportunity to take this magic item and then instead trade out another item that they had in the Empok Armory that could also serve to reactivate the lighthouse because in the Empok Armory at this point they had a gem of brightness which had been... Uh, reclaimed by Empox finest when they fought all the bugs in the mines uh, at the end of the campaign because the Gem of Brightness had been used as a source of light for the miners down there.
1: That's so basically, cool. I like that the, that persistence between the campaigns.
0: Yeah, and basically this was a thing where it was like, okay, so this is theoretically a quest item, but if you want this magic item... More than the thing you already have in the armory. You could do sort of a trade here. Um, And also it's just neat to have like an alternate solution. You know. Maybe they just you know want to keep the magic lantern. And so give them uh, different ways of dealing with it. Have it in mind. Um, But the altar has been corrupted. The temple... They find four skeletons and two zombies and they have a little battle in the temple with them. And then they find cowering in the back of the temple is the mad lighthouse keeper who has abandoned Poseidon and turned to the worship of the night side eclipse. And, um, so they, they captured him. He had clearly gone mad. They reactivated the lighthouse, but then also, uh, Ara Kendor, being a storm cleric, being a cleric, um, had the ability to cleanse the altar of Poseidon, and in so doing, I ran basically a little interaction between him and the god Poseidon, and this was very similar to in Empok's Finest when uh, they met Mephisto and Mephisto basically brokered a deal with Alistair to, like, become his new patron and sort of usurp the position of his previous lesser patron. Um, I had talked about how Arakendor had been initially conceptualized as, like, sort of a cleric of the Greek deity or, or figure Alala, which is, like, the personification of the war cry with the idea that he was a storm cleric that was sort of like based on sound. Um, But I think that didn't really take, or like it it didn't really come through a lot. And so we had this situation where uh, Poseidon says like, well, you could be Lord of the Tempests of the Sea. Like you could be a storm cleric that works for me. You could, I could be your patron. And so... Um, Much like we talked about in that episode where uh, Alistair Infernus started worshipping Mephisto, um, in this case, we have, like, it became part of the game storyline very early on that uh, Ara Kendor chose to take an oath to Poseidon and become a cleric of Poseidon. And that would persist throughout the rest of the campaign. Um, And you had mentioned uh, the whole thing about Greek gods because they'd been mentioned before in uh, the game because all the Empok firearms are named after Greek deities. Mm -hmm. However, there is no gun called the Poseidon. And so when Arakendor took this oath to Poseidon, Poseidon said, Alright, first things first. You have to talk to the Empoch Brass about fixing this thing, because every other god in my Pantheon <laughs> except me has a gun. And the worst part is that there is a gun that would be called the Poseidon, but the Empoch Brass decided it was too much of a mouthful, so they've been calling it the fish. I remember but the Poseidon's. Fish. But Poseidon's, like, patron animal isn't a fish, it's a horse. So Poseidon told Arakendor, your first order of business as, like, my faithful is go talk to Al-Samosath or whoever and get that revolver at least renamed to the fish revolver and not, or or the horse revolver and not the fish.
1: You mean like a, like a colt revolver? Uh?
0: Kind of. Although I think a Colt would be this is more of a light revolver like a 38 snub, and I think uh, I don't know. Did Colt make 38
1: snubs? I mean, we should know that a Colt, a, a Colt Python is a 357.
0: A, yeah, that's the thing is that like that's a heavy revolver. Mm. I think I always think of a Colt as like a big ass, you know what what we would call an Aphrodite revolver in uh, this setting. But uh, Arakendor agreed to this. And then, um, this was I did something that was a little strange here, uh certainly, my brother voiced like some confusion about it, but it was basically I mentioned at the start of the campaign that I had been using a rule that I kind of like called uh healer's kit dependency, which was basically I was requiring. The MPOC agents to carry med kits around with them so that if they wanted to heal taking a short rest, they would have to use one of their med kit charges in order to do it to represent like using some actual healing supplies to heal themselves up when they take the short rest rather than just kind of like inherently regenerating. Um, The thing was, this didn't come up a whole lot because of the tendency that I've found for MPOC agents in most operations, unless it's a very prolonged operation, they tend to only, like, rest between operations. And basically, they'll complete an operation, and then they've got time to take a long rest, so they do. And then they do the next operation. And so they don't actually take a lot of short rests to heal. And so first of all, the rule that I had planned to experiment with hadn't really come up a whole lot. The other thing is that I wanted to sort of like bestow a boon upon the party in return for Aura sort of pledging himself to Poseidon. And, uh, I think at the time I, it was definitely something that was like very inspired by like the sort of, I mean, bizarre writing of Jojo's bizarre adventure uh, <laughs> that the writer uh Iraqi is known for, um, where he just sort of like he he learns about something in science or or he learns something and or then he applies rock. it to he, <laughs> he applies it to his storyline in some truly bizarre way. And so this was deemed a very Iraqi boon that poseidon gave the players (laughs) but basically his the reasoning was that his control of the tides gave him the ability to sort of like supernaturally regulate their blood flow such that they would never bleed out if they were dying so basically like it doesn't really it it basically what it meant was it sort of changed their healing situation so that they could heal naturally. And like the real thing that it meant for the party was that it like the only way that one of them could die is if all of them died. Basically it was this system where you know no one was ever going to go down and just bleed out like by losing death, saving throws. Instead it was the sort of thing where like, The only thing that's really going to kill these guys is if all of them go down and none of them can heal each other. Um, And that's sort of basically what the boon represented. But the weird like explanation for it was like Poseidon's control of the tides allows him (laughs) to like alter their blood flow. And like it doesn't make medical sense or anything, I don't think. But it's it's weird, you know, Poseidon magic.
1: Some some waterbender stuff right there.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, so basically, uh, and, and that's why I say it, it was kind of a, uh, an Ara Kendor episode, uh, because it's the one where he found his, um, patron Poseidon and, uh, he'll go on to basically be like, you know, the guy of the, of the sea of the storm at sea, the priest of the, of the, of the watery tempest. So the fact that this is a sort of a you know Poseidon island adventure was uh, very much the uh the early eric arakendor
1: episode nice with a lighthouse and everything
0: yep yeah, pretty standard ass d and d but uh with the fun of uh you know including that level of uh divine involvement uh which is you know always more enjoyable if you have a cleric in the party it's that thing we were talking about in the past about like you know you all you often have characters that have patron gods but you know it's fun to see it mean something especially on a narrative level
1: yeah yeah absolutely and 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 cool to come out of that yeah cool to actually have like a full-on interaction there So, so so so, was the fish renamed the horse?
0: It is. It's the horse revolver now.
1: That's great. Just the horse, not the like, not the stallion, not the mustang. Nah, just the
0: horse. They just stuck with the horse. <laughs> horse
1: thirty-eight. Uh, you know, I I really hope at some point somebody's like they call it the horse, but it kicks like a mule,
0: huh? <laughs> ah man i I don't know. I don't think anybody said that, but Dang uh, and there's been a lot of episodes There's been a lot of sessions since, but I guess it's just not a bear like it's sort of your your cheap option, you know, like your option if you're a new agent and you just need to have a gun for your build for some reason, but it's it's low damage, it's cheap uh it's concealable, you know, but uh. I think most people they they move on to bigger guns pretty quickly. Meanwhile, in Eberron, or should we say, in the Asmodian knot?
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, in Eberron, not. Um,
0: not in Eberron.
1: So the Asmodian knot. This is still uh, something that I adapted from the Council of Thieves module uh, that contained the the past couple of adventures, the Sixfold Trials and then also the Cornucopia Feast. And the last part of this module is uh, this dungeon crawl through the Asmodean Knot. And so I adapted it to like I switched around a lot of the details of what's going on in the Asmodian Knot uh, so that it fits with the grander campaign story. Uh, but I used the map as printed in this module and uh, basically all of the descriptions of the rooms. And this was the first time for this party, like really plunging them into a weird fantasy scenario. Uh, up until this point, they've been dealing with a lot of, you know, like there's some some quirky adventures that they've gone on, but it's all been very kind of high fantasy D and D guy gaxi uh, details, and uh, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to carry through this whole module to get to the Asmodian knot because. Now there's, like, dark magic. There's weird interdimensional spaces. Uh, There are, like, demons and devils and strange creatures down there that they hadn't encountered before. And I just, I really wanted to throw them for a loop. Uh, It's funny to even say that, because there's a lot of, like, looping dimensional anomalies inside the Asmodean Knot. Um, And uh, ultimately, the narrative function of this dungeon crawl was... Uh, They're exploring this extra dimensional space, this like Demi plane uh, where the enforcer elite hold their prisoners and interrogate them and also uh, keep, you know, magic items that they've confiscated things of that nature uh, so that it's not they're not easily retrieved. Uh, You know, it's not like a physical place that can easily be broken into. It has to be fully infiltrated. Uh, and so the players have done that. And uh, the the so I guess there are the first thing I'll say before I even get into like describing the different features of the Asmodean Knot is in addition to having some of the Enforcer Elite like milling around inside the Asmodean Knot doing, you know, imprisoning, uh, impri- locking up prisoners and uh, just performing sort of their duties, they're just
0: being bad. Just teaching dogs to smoke. Yeah, exactly.
1: Being, stuff bad guys do. I should have had one teaching teaching a dog to smoke. Um, but there is sure we're bad. This tiefling rogue slash shadow dancer NPC that's a part of this module, who I repurposed to be. Sort of like the, uh, the the one of the principal guardians of the Asmodian knot, and she has her name is cyan, and she has uh, a lot of sort of invisibility, uh gaseous form style abilities she can shadow meld. and so I wanted to have it be that right away, as soon as the players get into the Asmodian knot. I had them do some, like, perception checks and search checks and things. I guess it would, it would spot and listen for, for third edition. Um, and if they did not succeed, then she was on their tail right from the beginning, waiting for the right moment to strike. And they just didn't notice her. And that's that's what happened. So Lurking in the Shadows is this, this tiefling uh, rogue shadow dancer with you know, a whole bunch of cool combat tricks just waiting for the right moment to strike so that she could throw a big kink in their plans. Um, so the players enter the Asmodian Knot and I'll, I'll try to like, I don't know, it's tough to describe just sort of like a straight up dungeon crawl. Uh, I'll try to just hit upon the highlights. And I remember this being like a lot of fun to run as well just because so much of it is like exploration. I gave the players the map and like covered parts of it so that as they moved along, they could be like, Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, you know, there's a hallway that goes left and a hallway that goes straight. Uh, I look down the hallway to the left. What do I see? And I can sort of describe like, Oh, in the distance, you see an opening to a large chamber, uh, with a spiraling stone stairway that winds up to the left Oh, okay. You know, I go in there. Um, so they're, they're sort of prowling through, uh, this, this weird, well, it's like a knot like maze of passages. And every now and again, they'll come into a room and the rooms have these just weird features, uh, like the one I was just describing the, the chamber with the the spiral staircase. Um, it had the staircase itself is almost like a a set of Penrose steps where it loops back upon itself uh, where they, they, you know, as they go, if they go up the stairs, uh, Eventually, they find themselves sort of looping back up to the the floor where they arrived. And there are a few chambers like that where there's like a seemingly bottomless pit underneath the stairway. And I did have at one point a player fell into the bottomless pit and gravity started acting weird so that as they fell, they were slowing down more and more. And then eventually... Uh, almost like in the game portal, like they passed through the bottom and then came out the top of the chamber again and kept passing through and they had to find a creative way to uh, to stop themselves, which wound up being the players getting on either side of the pit and throwing a rope across and then the falling player having to like grab onto the rope with a dexterity saving throw. A reflex saving throw.
0: I'm just imagining... I'm just imagining somebody failing like an acrobatics check or whatever on that spiral staircase and just falling down it forever
1: (laughs) just around and around and and the rest of the party like standing back against the wall as they fall by again not saving them
0: throw me a rope i don't know it's hard
1: i (laughs) don't know this is pretty entertaining I think perhaps the rope I will watch for a while longer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I'm surprised that didn't happen. Man, that's classic.
1: Yeah, nobody did the, the falling down the stairs forever, but uh, somebody, I think it was Marcus, wound up falling through the bottomless pit for a while before they rescued him from the strange gravitational pull. Um, there's uh, There was one room... Where it had these these black mirrors that uh, shadow figures would come out of and attack them. and uh, the black mirrors are sort of like portals to the plane of shadows that only shadows can pass through. Uh, and I in the the canon was that these were magic items, powerful magic items that the uh, the enforcer elite had confiscated. And that was like a whole, a whole encounter that wound up happening where the, the players got too close and released a bunch of these, uh, these shadow. They, they're just, they're shadows from the Pathfinder bestiary. Uh, and it was like this whole thing where they were trying to, you know, find a way to deal with these incorp- incorporeal enemies. It's always just sort of fun, like watching your players flail around trying to figure these things out. Now, the one of the main I'll, I'll touch upon sort of like the main features rather than going room by room, because there were a lot of rooms in this dungeon. Uh, one of the main features, uh, one of the main areas that they came upon were the prison cells. And there were a lot of prisoners in there who had like wasted away Um just like long dead prisoners uh, with you know presented as mummified remains on straw mattresses but the one that they were really struck by was that there's uh, one cell where a devil has been imprisoned and as soon as they spot this devil who's like this hideous creature he tr- he starts trying to make a deal with them like let me out come on let me out i'll I'll make it worth your while I can help you out and uh trying to convince them uh, using you know like uh divine favor and things like that, offering them wealth offering them uh offering them magic items and uh they resisted his attempts but eventually decided to free him just sort of like of the goodness of their heart because they couldn't stand to see anybody imprisoned and didn't want anybody to suffer the fate of the the already dead prisoners as they were trying to free this devil that's when the uh, that's when Cyan struck and so there was this big encounter where they uh, who was it I believe it was I believe it was Marcus trying to open the the gate while well, the rest of them fought against this uh, the shadow as dancer. Long as, it's not
0: as it wasn't Grant.
1: No, it wasn't. No, uh, it certainly wasn't the paladin, um, Gabriel. So it would. There was a dust up. There was a fight. They didn't end up freeing the devil they did end up killing the tiefling and uh, because of all the noise they started hearing commotion from down the hallway and they're like okay sorry we got to move we'll come back for you on the way back and so they left Uh, and they continued exploring there's one part of the asmodian knot and i'll post the uh, i'll have to post the map for this on our wordpress but sort of the the key the the heart of this dungeon is this series of of pits with uh, with spiral staircases around the outside and doors leading off of them. But all the doors are weird portals. It's like one of those annoying kind of portal puzzles from a video game where you go through a door and it seems to teleport you to a random other place. And so you have to like figure out the combination going through the appropriate doors to try and come out the other side and there were a lot of them it took them a while to figure out and it was in this area that uh, marcus fell down into the bottomless pit and they had to retrieve him wrong door yeah there are a lot of wrong doors uh and all of this all you know, there's so many there's so many parts to this too. Like there's some really so
0: many things you could do with this too. Like you could uh have that teleporter puzzle, but then run it like uh Hunt the Wumpus. You ever know Hunt the Wumpus?
1: Oh man, I the name Basically, cer- certainly rings a bell. What is that?
0: Oh, it's a very, very old computer game where you uh move from like spot to spot on sort of like a a hex-based maze um but there's a monster in the maze with you and you are attempting to you, like if you end up in the same square as the monster the monster kills you so what you're attempting to do is use your senses you can hear which direction sounds are coming from and you try to fire arrows like in the direction to get the wumpus before it gets you, you but can i'm totally just imagining that, yeah. like yeah put a big monster in the teleporter maze and then like you know it's like a minotaur in the maze but
1: be good that would be really neat it's a good idea using your senses to try and like which door do I fire through kind of a thing Um, one of the cool parts of this dungeon one of the rooms that I really like uh, is this area called the damaged conduit A circular pit takes up much of this room, 30 feet above dozens of strange shadowy stalactites descend from the ceiling, Um, their lengths transforming after a few feet into iron chains that descend into a tangle of chains suspended over the centre of the pit below. The tangle wraps and suspends what appears to be a mutilated human body at its core. Many chains dangle from this sphere into the glowing red depths of the pit, but several chains float and writhe in the air like strands of seaweed in a churning tide pool. And the, what happens when the, the players sort of get in there and activate the encounter is the chains in a very Hellraiser-esque fashion wrap further around the human form and become a sphere, an animated object, a sphere of chains. And there's a whole uh, sort of combat encounter here with the animated sphere of chains um, just attacking the, the players, trying to wrap them up and engulf them. And it's just kind of neat to have like this big swinging animated chain ball that the players have to contend with. So
0: I I would be remiss if I did not give a shout out to my favorite adventure of all time, Return to the Tomb of Horrors, um, which has a room similar to this somewhere early on in Aserorak's Fortress of Conclusion. The uh, sort of final part of the adventure if i'm remembering right um the players have the chance to come across uh a critical npc who they've sort of been following the footsteps of in the adventure uh in as it's written um and they find him in the fortress of conclusion and he's been like it is similarly it's like a hellraiser kind of thing but he's been like stitched up and he's been like strung up to the roof with all these like stitches in him. But then if the players, and this is an NPC that the players like, if they recognize him, they will want to talk to him because they've been sort of following his notes and stuff all this time. But then when the players go to assist him, the stitching all like pulls out of the guy and then tries to stitch up into the player and stitch them up. And then of course, because it's returned to the Tomb of Horror, um, this is basically a save or die. It's like, even if the damage doesn't kill you, there's a system shock check from being like completely stitched through by this animated string. Wow, yeah. Uh, that just like murders you. So, you know, if I ran it, it'd just be a save versus a bunch of terrible damage. But still, freaky, animated, suspended people traps, you know?
1: Far out. Man, I imagine I should that run this that one, sometime. Like, I have to,
0: I have to imagine that, like, this one was kind of inspired by that one because, like, it seems so, it seems so similar, and that is such an iconic thing to me from the Tomb of Horrors. Yeah, the, I wouldn't doubt it. Return to the Tomb of Horrors. It's not the Tomb of Horrors. It's the Fortress of Conclusion. It's like two levels past the Tomb of Horrors. Man, <laughs> you thought the Tomb of Horrors was hard? Also, Tomb of Horrors has some classic. Uh, teleportation traps, but those ones tend to uh send you to a room full of animated swords without any of your equipment or clothing.
1: So the players descend all the way through their the Asmodian knot, finding their way down to the the bottommost pit. And uh the bottommost pit is the vault. of of confiscated items there's lots of magical gear here and uh it's it's the vault where the enforcer elite you know stores everything that they have taken from people they have arrested or executed and because it's so filled with magic items it is lorded over it's guarded by this creature that is called in the module it's called the outcast king and it's this otug variant Who's this? This gigantic, like demonic-looking Otiug uh, with you know, these, these big tentacles. You would. Uh, I'm gonna have to send you a, a still of this guy because he's really cool. And so the players enter, and it's another. It's another big fight. Um, lots of tentacle-based attacks, but also uh, he, he has like small. Arms, like small forearms on his main body that he can use weapons with so it's this it it was quite the quite a battle involving uh, a lot of like sword play because he was wielding these long swords and also you know these crazy tentacles eventually oh and uh i should note as a preview for what's coming up in the tavern and in the tavern i'm going to talk a bit about the book of vile darkness But if you're struck by the tentacles on this beast, uh, you have a chance of getting infected with a magical disease.
0: (laughs) I just threw up uh, the gif of the Odiug from Baldur's Gate 2, which I am a big fan of. For some reason, you know, it's funny. I find that this... Odiog looks distinctive from the drawings of odiogs in like every artist's interpretation of them and this is like the true one to me. I don't know what it is.
1: Well, it certainly it certainly looks a bit better than a lot of the odiog il- illustrations are like a body with three legs and then the tentacles just kind of flapping around above it. This one actually looks like way- a creature that has limbs.
0: I think it's the way that this one has almost like fish-like eyes to the sides, like those little beady eyes yeah. over the mouths. Oftentimes the Odeogs I find are shown with like no mouth or, or no eyes visible. It's just like a big mouth. And I think like this kind of like gives it a kind of, it gives it a bit of an aberrant look, but it, it's so cool. Mm-hmm.
1: So the players bested the outcast king and start pilfering the room. And I didn't want to give them access to like too much stuff because there's a lot of, of cool magical items in here. I wanted to give a sense of urgency. Yeah. So at this point, the alarm is raised. They know that people are coming. They only have enough time to like grab one or two things. So they search through the room and sure enough, they find the head of Falzmir the Druid. So they find Falsmere's yeah, yeah, yeah. head. And they find a couple of other. Uh, do they of...
0: find it in like a big sack full of heads?
1: Yes, you got it. They're, <laughs> they're hanging. They're, there's a hanging sack full of heads. Um, so they have to take the sack with all the heads. They don't have time to like sort through it. And yeah,
0: they should go on. Their new quest is to return deliver the heads a head to all in every <laughs> deliver a head in every city they uh, do a show in.
1: <laughs> that would be pretty good.
0: And um, then unite. Unite all the re-headed warriors to form an army against the Enforcer Elite.
1: Well, they didn't end up doing that, but I really like that. That would be a pretty good, just a good hook for an adventure, or for a campaign, Adventure 1. Give them a bag full of heads, and they've got to figure out what to do with it. Um, Kick-ass. They grab the bag of heads, and they grab some treasure, uh, a a few of the like, a handful of treasure items. I basically had, gave them enough treasure for so that they each get one cool thing. There was, like, a ring of feather fall. Uh, there was a wand of cure moderate wounds. There was a, a plus one battle axe. Um, so they just, like, grab their stuff and they bolt. And I ran a few more combat encounters. There's a whole section of the Asmodean Knot that is guarded by these, these monsters called Howlers. They're, like, these... Ah,
0: yeah, classic.
1: Yeah, spiky, like, demon Spikies. dog creatures. Um, so they had to fight some howlers, but eventually they make their way back out of the Asmodian Knot and through the exit back into the mayor's house, and uh, they then destroyed the exit behind them so that nobody could follow them through. Nice. And I'll end and- the session there, Uh, but sort of like the... the... Do
0: they come out of the room in the mayor's house and suddenly there's a million guards outside? No, Uh they don't
1: because the the mayor and all his guests are still totally fucked up from the party that's going on.
0: Drug time.
1: Yeah, so...
0: I gotta say, I like slipped into a reverie there just imagining the adventure campaign where you start with a bag of heads and like how I would structure it and like the first head you get like... Is this great and wise wizard? Who's like "Uh, my my apprentice was also in there. You must you must find him. But then of course there's like a ton of heads they like find they find the owners of before they find that like key (laughs) apprentice. But then like one of the heads they find is like for an evil villain. And so then once they finally find the apprentice's head and bring him back to the wizard, the villain has like engaged a plot against them. He's like oh man. That'd be sick.
1: That's great. I'd play that campaign. That's really... That's awesome. And you could incorporate, like, a Headless Horseman-style character, too. Like, the villain... You know, a villainous character who has no head, but is controlled by the person that that possesses the head.
0: Hell of a campaign for Speak With Dead, let me tell you.
1: Yeah, true (laughs) enough.
0: Where the hell are you from? Where the hell are you from? Where the hell are you from? (laughs) So... Uh, McGill has thrown up a little image of that outcast king, and, uh, I love it. He's a badass, badass monster dude. Got a lot more- Demonic- He's got a lot more personality- thing. He's got a lot more personality than most Otiugs, you know? He's, he's got a real yeah, face. Yeah, absolutely.
1: But- And horns, and then tiny arms, like little vestigial arms.
0: Going from one thing to another- Let's head on down to that tavern.
1: Going from a, a non-Euclidean demiplane to a non-Euclidean tavern.
0: Classic. Oh, and hey, the Outcast King's here.
1: Yeah, he's, he's got uh, quadruple he, he's tentacling he's ordered it. six drinks.
0: <laughs> he's like double fisting Quadru- it, but he's quadruple tentling it. tentacling it. <laughs> um i don't know about you mcgill but for some reason on this saint patrick's day because of the subject matter of my adventure i decided uh for my tavern pick i'd uh continue to do shoutouts to poseidon
1: that makes perfect sense it totally fits with saint patrick's day it occurs to me that i should, probably should have done like Something on leprechauns, maybe. Maybe. But no. <laughs> the Leprechaun.
0: Um I have here <laughs> the uh, Scion Hero, the first Scion book in the original release. And uh I decided I'd pull up the uh entry for Poseidon. So we got uh Poseidon, aka Neptune. Nethune's or Rhodon. I never heard of that. Description Legends say Poseidon was the happiest of Zeus's siblings. He married well, had a horde of children, ruled a vast dominion, received offerings from dozens of cities, had hundreds of temples and shrines, and married a young woman from land in every port for the better part of four millennia. It was a divinely good life. In the modern age, Poseidon is a passionate but difficult man. White-bearded, half-bald, grizzled and wrinkled, he appears as a startlingly spry and well-preserved man in his 70s. Even in mortal guises, his skin has an almost blue tinge to it. Over the years, the sea god has taken the role of a shipping agent, an underwater archaeologist, and a naval officer. He still gambles at the horse races. Most of all, however... Poseidon is an environmentalist. He rages at what humans are doing to his ocean, and he plans to make them stop. Triton,
1: po- this guy sounds like Aquaman.
0: Triton Poseidon's son and favorite Scion, uh, does most of the work of contacting his father's progeny these days. These Scions are a tsunami building across the world, transforming nations and civilizations wreaking havoc on a world that forgot Poseidon and forgot to take care of the ocean. The Scions of the Horse Lord will make everyone remember. Their associated powers are epic charisma, epic manipulation, uh, animal purview with the horse specialization, uh, arte, which is the Greek pantheon-specific power, uh, earth, and water. His favorite abilities are animal ken, control, fortitude, Integrity, melee, and throne, and his rivals are Zeus, Dambala, Frigg, Geb, Quetzalcoatl, Susanoo, and Tyr. And uh, of course, with the whole Scion layout, we've got the image where there's all the Dodecatheon, the Greek pantheon, in their original forms, and then you have them in more modern forms. And so Poseidon, of course, goes from his more classic form where he's got a big trident and stuff to uh, a salty old fisherman.
1: <laughs> I really like the image of Poseidon fighting Quetzalcoatl.
0: I love, like, it's such... It's something I talked about previously when we talked about Scion, but it's like, I get why the Titans were created for the game, like, as as villains, but it's that's not the interesting thing about this game. Like what you really want is to explore stories like the one they've built in right there about like, Oh, there's a whole bunch of Poseidon children who are like plotting to strike out against the world in some sort of act of environmental terrorism or something. And it's like, man, just, uh, just do that, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah um or poseidon finds a, a littered garbage bag full of severed heads
0: Ooh, and they gives them all his uh children uh i've got actually another thing here which is just something interesting that happens to be in the same part of the book uh as poseidon's entry um and it is on the topic of adopting scions Virgin goddesses, such as Artemis and Athena, find the concept of mating with men disagreeable. Osiris cannot procreate scions of his own. Set has difficulty doing so as well. Uniquely ugly gods, such as Mictlantec... Mictlentec- I fuck I... Mr. That. Mixus Pitluck? It's the death god of the Aztecs. I know the underworld is Mictlan Mictlantec Thule... I... I have problems of their own. Yet, for these gods, and for all gods, adoption remains a viable alternative. When a god adopts the sign of another, he claims that child so completely that the child thereafter treats the adopting god's associated powers and favored abilities as his own. The gods can't simply poach one another's offspring, however, even when one divine parent is unaware of a child's existence. In order for the adoption to be formal and binding, the child's true parent must first formally disinherit him in the overworld, utterly renouncing his filial connections and responsibility. After that, any god or goddess who has a mind to can claim the child, the culmination of which claim is a visitation and a bestowal of birthrights. After the visitation, it's too late for any divine being, even the child's true divine parent, to claim the child. It's also too late for the adopting parent to renounce his claim. The child is now his in the eyes of fate. A god cannot adopt a mortal and make him a scion in this way. Only a being whose body combines mortal flesh and divine ichor, regardless of whose divine ichor it is, can be adopted thus. Also, no scion who has already received a visitation can be adopted by another god, even if that god should later grow to despise his scion and renounce him before all the gods of the overworld. Finally, while this terrifying possibility is rare, it is known that the titans themselves can adopt formerly disinherited scions. Some titans will even take a scion under their wing regardless of the current relationship between that scion and the parent god. All the scion has to be is willing. I think there's a lot of interesting notes there. I think, I kind of think the idea of gods trying to poach each other's children is actually kind of um, compelling enough that I might just like break the rules to do a campaign like that. Or like just do a (laughs) character like that where it's like it turns out you were actually originally one god's kid, but you got tricked by another god. That's classic. It's
1: certainly. Very adherent to mythology. Exactly,
0: it's it's classic mythology stuff. It's you know Loki tricking a son of Thor or something. Thing you know,
1: or Hercules being being cast down to earth.
0: Mm. I mean, that's that's scion, baby. Um. So yeah, that's what I brought. Meanwhile, you gave a little hint at what you're bringing. You're bringing some vile darkness to the stage
1: yeah you know uh given the contents of the Asmodian knot i thought it might be fun to take a peek into the book of vile darkness the source book the book of vile darkness because believe there's also a magic item called the book of vile i believe darkness. so um but no this is the source book uh the much reviled tom have you ever like Looked into it man. have you ever dealt with the book of vile darkness?
0: Oh man, I mean, um
1: it has a real reputation for being not good.
0: I had an ex who was a big fan of the book
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that it's,
0: I um, mean, it's a weird relationship to have with it um i mean, yeah no i I'm aware of it i just i I know of its reputation.
1: It's very, like, edgy. There's a lot of stuff in it where you're like, I don't know, man. Would I ever really want to put this in a campaign? Um, I'm addicted to liquid pain! Ooh, yeah, there are are magic drugs. Um, There's, like, a whole section at the start about just, like, what makes something evil? Betrayal. Theft um murder etc uh i have i have taken things from it usually you know thinking on it most of what i have used the book of vile darkness for as a source book is um finding cool abilities for my big bad villains because there are some really neat unique like feats and stuff in it um that go well with like the ultimate bad guy for a campaign, but you never really want to use it outside of that context and uh, They're the magic monsters in it. There's like a big section with all sorts of crazy demons and devils uh, Stuff with really unusual abilities and I've used a few of those uh, in my various campaigns um, But I can totally see why it has the reputation for not being all that great It's a lot of, as I said, a lot of sort of edge lordy stuff in here. But there is one thing. It's also, I
0: would say, like, I think part of that reputation just comes from the time in Dungeons and Dragons that it comes from, because, like, that was a time where supplements like this were enabling people to, like, take the metagame totally out of control to the point where, like, any class could theoretically be built to just be like a game breaking insane over complex exercise
1: oh yeah i mean there are there are some there are definitely like classes in here that are overpowered and just kind of like in bad taste like the cancer mage Jeez, man um but i was i i have a digital copy of it and I was like, you know, it's it's probably. I'd play a cancer mage. About That's time cool. we... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's probably about time we we take a peek. So uh, you know how I love a random table. Well, get your percentile dice ready because I'm gonna get you to roll in a, in a moment. And the context for this is there is a whole section on magical diseases we've talked we did diseases on a, a previous episode but there are more uh magical diseases here more evil ones uh examples like soul rot creatures that eat the flesh of an evil outsider can contract soul rot it eats at the victim's mind and soul until she dies a terrible agonizing death full of pain and misery okay <laughs> okay great um but the the sort of fun one that stands out amongst all these other just sort of like ugh, depressing magic diseases is Warp Touch. One of the worst effects of raw chaos and dissolution, the malady known as Warp Touch has a random set of effects that manifest immediately. Once it takes hold, no more saving throws are needed. The malady gets neither better nor worse. It is permanent. A removed disease spell accomplishes nothing. When a character falls victim to this disease, roll on this table. So, Tom, you've contracted Warp yes. Touch. Yes. Let's find out what it does to from, you.
0: From rocking out, playing air guitar on the altar of Nurgle. Uh, roll your fifty-three.
1: 53. Your body is suddenly covered with tufts of hair. Mmm, Wolfman. <laughs> wolf on base. Um, if you want, you can roll again. I'll just, I'll eventually just read off a bunch of these. But let's do one yeah, let's more. let's
0: do it. T- tell me what a 69 is.
1: Nice. 69 is your legs grow more muscular and your speed increases by plus 10 feet. You know what let's those like.
0: muscular legs would be good for. 69. 69. <laughs> when you get to jump most.
1: Um, but man, like okay, so I'll just I'll go through these. They're all really funny. Uh, well, not all not all of them are really funny, but a lot of these are really funny. Such as your body turns to a formless jelly and the character dies.
0: Uh, can I roll again?
1: Yeah, roll, roll it. Forty one. Forty one. Your skin turns a random color.
0: Yeah, getting all weird today.
1: Uh, the 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 one before that for thirty nine and forty is your legs become snake tails and your speed is reduced by half.
0: And now I want to. <laughs> this is just making me think about the Warhammer Fantasy role playing game, like Chaos Mutation table.
1: This you know what this reminds me of is uh, Nightbane. Yeah, that was a lot we're of ro- fun. We're rolling up a Nightbane.
0: Here, uh, um, you. Oh my God, hit me! with a d1000 roll and I'll give you a chaos trait a personal chaos attribute.
1: I gotta pull up a custom dice mm-hmm. roller 670. Ooh,
0: oh, that's so close to 666. What do we got? Oh, 666 to 675 multiple heads. <laughs>
1: Do they all have distinct personalities? Well,
0: man, so then this takes me to a page. The mutant grows one or more extra heads. T, which might be toughness, plus one... Oh, yeah, yeah, your toughness trait plus one half per head. Roll a d6 to determine how many. One to five is one more head, and six... You roll a six, you get two, head, two more heads. Uh, the mutant always has at least as many... Attacks as it has heads, uh, i.e. I, if necessary, increase the mutant's attacks to match its number of heads. Do not reduce its attack score if this is already greater than the number of heads. Um, in addition, increase its fear point, point total by one. Subsequent chaos attributes can affect the mutant's heads, i.e. eye stalks or bestial face. Uh, you can decide the effects of such attributes for yourself a two-headed mutant for example who grows horns might get one horn on the outer side of each head or a pair of horns on each head (laughs) a three-headed mutant with a mannequin might get three mannequins or one mannequin on its center head what is a mannequin uh mannequin most of the mutant's facial features attribute and disappear until only the mouth is functional my god uh meanwhile a miniature body sprouts from the mutant's forehead and crown this mannequin torso is perfect in every detail with its own arms head and face <laughs>
1: Like it's a, a, a tiny torso with head and arms coming out of your Alternatively, head. Alternatively,
0: you can apply I each feel attribute.
1: Like what we're really doing here, <sighs> what we're really doing here, is generating a, a new member of Guar.
0: <laughs> Alternatively, you can apply each attribute randomly to the mutant's heads. Roll a d6 and consult the table for the number of heads that are affected. One to three, one head. Four to five, two heads. Six, three heads. Man. Man, chaos mutation rules. Ridiculous. No, nobody like you can pull anything out of the vile darkness, but no, no one does mutation like like Warhammer does.
1: Yeah, that, I you certainly got me there.
0: Nightbane, um, maybe.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I guess. Well, but Nightbane, like they just built a whole system around it. I don't. I feel like it doesn't really count. That's like saying nobody does gods like Scion. Mm. It's sort of like, well, yeah, that, that's what it's for. Um, it is true though that like i don't
0: i can't think of any game that does the pantheons of gods all collected together as well as scion does like it's such a well yeah exactly such a trans trans uh trans spiritual religious game i don't know trans mythological game
1: Here are a few more effects of Warp Touch. I won't. I won't read all of them because some of the, a lot of these are just sort of like you know, one arm becomes useless. You get one d six strength con and deck strain you Now that's tough. But then you have stuff like uh, eyes fall out, permanent blindness. Oh no! Your your tongue grows really really long. <laughs> you lose all hair, and it's like the opposite of the one you rolled. You grow an extra useless arm. Uh, your arms become tentacles, you can't hold objects, but you gain the improved grab feat. Your head swells, giving you a plus four deformity bonus to intelligence. (laughs) You grow a really wide mouth with a bite that deals 1d6 points of damage. You you grow horns uh, with a gore attack that deals 2d4 points of damage. You can grow scales, thick skin, longer legs. Your arms grow freakishly muscular, giving you plus two to strength. You become freakishly stout. I like how they keep using the adjective, like freakishly. Like, aren't all of these kind of freakish? Um, You grow working wings. It's pretty badass. Uh, Petrifying eyes with a gaze attack similar to that of a Medusa. You form oozing pustules that give you uncontrollable poison touch. And there's some stats on on your poison. Uh, you form steaming pustules, uh, no. creating an uncontrollable stench in a five-foot radius. Hey,
0: ghasts! That's what I was talking about earlier.
1: Yeah. And then uh, 95 to 100 is you roll twice on this table. <laughs> Man.
0: So I think I've mentioned it before, but I once ran... Uh, Warhammer game with the players were like Chaos Cultists and I was doing sort of a time-jumping mini-series game where they were like, each episode they were many levels higher but each one, at the end of it I'd have them roll on the mutation table and so it was a great game for like, having them start as just like, you know, barbarians and then over the course of the game they just morphed into like hideous crazy demons with like all these different like one of them grew feathers and a second head and wings and stuff and then one of them became like freakishly short and got like elongated limbs and became like this terrible little monkey man it was great
1: (laughs) i'm down with that that's pretty cool
0: it is a super great way to run a campaign actually (laughs)
1: It's a really neat trajectory to give the characters where they just keep on becoming more and more mutated.
0: Yeah. It's the dream.
1: Anyway, maybe... Yeah, (laughs) isn't it? Isn't it? It's all of our dreams. I feel
0: like that's the dream for a Nightbane. Like, a Nightbane, naturally, you gain powers by just, like, getting more crazy abilities.
1: (laughs) Do you think that Nightbanes, like, are envious of other (laughs) Nightbanes? It's like, oh, man... I just, got, I got like claws, that guy over there, he got a second mouth with a zipper on. I
0: it. mean, it's, it's very, it's very tempting to run a game of Night Bane that's based on like Invincible or whatever, like, like one of those stories where everyone's a superhero or everybody has some degree of super, like just Nightbanes are so common that they're just like another class of citizen and. Some of them have useful powers and some of them are just messed up.
1: <laughs> I wonder if anybody still plays Nightbane. Man, they sh- I hope so. If chance if you are listening to this and you play Nightbane, let us know. I
0: really hope someone's playing Nightbane. It makes me want to pl- like you saying this makes me want to play Nightbane just to ensure that someone is playing Nightbane. I wouldn't play it, like, like, as written rules, but i just, like, you know, I'd poach.
1: Use the setting and the... And the crazy... The (laughs) the Nightbane RCC.
0: The crazy powers and stuff.
1: Well, yeah, that's just it, right? It's like, uh, a game is is worth nothing if there's nobody to play it.
0: Yeah, but I like to think that people are playing Nightbane. So... But you know who is playing Nightbane is not me. Um, this has <laughs> been episode 53. I figure we wrapped it up at the Tavern just now with those last musings on Nightbane. Uh, if you want to follow us and uh, keep up to date with our updates when episodes go on, check us out on Facebook, Compare and Campaign on Facebook. If you want to see all screenshots and stuff that we post, links, stuff that we're talking about, Uh, check out comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. And uh, thanks for listening. Uh, Anything else?
1: Level up your character, get that ding, and uh, don't contract warp touch.
0: Or do, if you want to be really cool.